Uh, as you're seated, would you open the Bible, God's Word, to 1 Peter chapter 1. You say, we finished that last week, I know. <laughs> You've probably noticed the, the notes sheet is a little different. And uh, we're looking here at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, again from last week, Peter writes, from God, that we have purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That was part of what we have been called to, for a sincere brotherly love. The command there is to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. We saw a very strong connection between loving one another and the Scriptures. We talked about that love and how impossible it is for us to love in the way that the Scriptures call us to. We we can't do it on our own, so how do we? How are we enabled to, not just shown how, but how are we enabled to love impossibly? Well, because our souls have been purified, because we've been born again through the perfect Word of God. It's an imperishable, living, abiding, and proclaimed Word of God. So, we love one another with an undying, continually undying, imperishable, living, abiding love, a sincere brotherly love. And we do that because we've been purified because we've been born again because of God's Word. Now, that Word of God for many of us was sufficient for us for salvation, wasn't it? It was sufficient for us to be saved. But how sufficient is this Word of God for us in our daily life this morning, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? How sufficient is the Word of God? Does it matter to us outside of salvation? You know, this Word of God contained the truth that we needed. It is the truth that we needed to get that uh, ticket out of hell, <laughs> right? To keep our souls from an eternity in hell. And, and it taught us faith in Christ. It taught us to repent of our sins. The Word taught us about sin and righteousness and forgiveness and God's mercy through Jesus Christ. We learned that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We learned that everyone who believes in Him will never perish, but have everlasting life. We learned that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We learned that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We learned these truths, and we had faith in these truths, and they were sufficient for us to be saved We learned all of that. We had faith in all of that. We praised God for His goodness, His kindness, His mercy, how He saved us when we didn't deserve it. We sang, we prayed, we read, we tried to read, and then we just left off of that. We prayed some more, and we sang some more, and we maybe told some other people about the gospel that we'd believed in, but somewhere along the way, the Word that was so precious to us and so important and so sufficient for our salvation somehow became a little less precious to us. Because all we saw in the Bible was the gospel that saved us, past tense. The Bible, the rest of it, became just a really big book, a daunting book that um, 
we're told we're supposed to read. Really, there are six or seven verses in it that we know, those, those, those few verses that we know about the gospel, right? I mean, we can take those out, we can find them, and if we're really feeling bold, we can share them with somebody else. But the rest of this is really unknown and kind of a big black hole for many of us. We lost the preciousness, the importance, the sufficiency of the Bible in our life. As important as it was to our salvation, it became just as unimportant in our life after salvation. It's really just a collection of stories that you teach the little kids on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights or Wednesday nights or if we teach the little children at all. When we try to read it, we get lost. We don't understand what's happening. We don't see how it fits or if it fits together. We don't see what it has to do with Jesus. You know, what? why is he, you know, it says it's all about him, but how come he doesn't come in until three quarters of the way through? right? Worse, we don't see what any of it has to do with us other than the gospel. But I already know the gospel because I'm saved. What do, I, what do I need with it now? There's apparently little else to it in our minds. So many of us struggle with reading it or seeing it as the Word of God that's relevant to our daily life. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that this is given to us by God's divine power and it is all things that we need. It is everything that we need for life and godliness. But is that true for us? We hear about the importance of the Bible. You know, it feels like it's something that should be more important to us, right? We, we know that it should be, but our attempts have fallen so short. So, often we try to read and we don't get it. We get lost and we don't understand and so we just kind of leave off. So, we turn to those who teach it, those who preach it. We listen to people on the radio. We sing the songs and listen to the songs on the radio. We'll just leave it to them to tell us what it's about. Tell me the important stuff. I'll leave it to somebody else, right? But even that can get confusing because some teachers are really gifted at communicating and others, not so much. They can grab our attention. They can hold our attention while they teach. Some write books that seem really relevant to life. They pull out verses out of this big black hole of the Bible, and they they seem really important and really relevant to our life and my situation. But sometimes those teachers contradict each other, don't they? People, People can say one thing, and another teacher will come along and read the same verse and say something completely different. How how do I know what's true? How do I know that what they got came from the Bible? Did it come from the Bible? Was it, was it carefully studied and explained? Or was it just something that impacted him as he read it and now he's just sharing it with us? How do, how do, I, how do I tell? I mean, I'm leaving it to these people to tell me what the Word of God says, so how do I tell what they're saying and whether it's right and whether it's true? I mean, those teachers that talk about give me money, give me money, send me money. If you don't have money, you don't have faith. <laughs> you know, we can dismiss them. That's easy enough, right? But how do we know Who is telling us the truth? And that's when we come down to that saying that people like to quote, well, everybody's entitled to their own interpretation, right? But if we think about it, that doesn't seem quite right because God communicated, He communicated for a reason, and He probably wants us to understand the reason and what He's communicated, right? You wouldn't want someone to do that with what you said. If you said, I'm going to the store, you wouldn't want people interpreting that however they wanted. Oh, it's all about you and what you're doing. <laughs> well, no, I was going to ask if you needed anything, right? I mean, you know, I'm going to the store. Someone says, well, obviously you're not content with what the Lord's given you. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not what I mean, right? You know, ah, someone's, oh, that's your existential journey to the, the store of where souls are. 
No, I'm just going to the store, right? I mean, this is a ridiculous example. But the one who made the statement gets to be the one who decides what it means, right? And the context is helpful to understanding the meaning. So it really isn't safe to say, well, everybody's entitled to their own interpretation because God wrote what he wrote and he meant something by what he wrote. It all comes down then to, to style or, or preference, you know, my tastes. Well, I like this teacher better than that one. Why? Uh, I like his accent. I, <laughs> I know people that say that about pastors. I like his stories. I like how he's always so positive. I, I like him because he digs so deep. I like him because he doesn't dig very deep, <laughs> right? <laughs> this one's easygoing. That one's always relevant. My favorite just resonates with me. It just feels right. This one always brings out one or two things I can do this week. Why is it so rare to hear anyone say, well, I listen to this teacher or preacher because he's explaining the Bible and I understand it better after being under that teaching? Because many of us, if we're honest, wouldn't know the difference between Bible teaching and teaching man's wisdom. If somebody's standing behind a pulpit or a lectern or a a glass stand or just on a stage holding a book, we assume it's the Bible. If they say, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Bible, well, they must be teaching the Bible, right? We wouldn't know Bible teaching from secular teaching so often. We wouldn't be able to tell the difference between man-centered wisdom in psychology from God's wisdom in theology, except that so often the psychology seems a whole lot more on point, more relevant, more helpful in my everyday life. We wouldn't often know the difference between Bible teaching about the church from business growth strategies. Or what's relevant to us this morning, the difference between God's commands and His Word to love one another from a worldly approach to cultivating interpersonal relationships. More current maybe today, the difference between God's Word from critical leadership theory integrating transdisciplinary perspectives. (laughs) Sounds fancy, it must be right. The Bible has lost its importance for many of us, its relevance, its sufficiency to us in the church. I'm I'm speaking as a whole, not anybody individually or in in particular, but it may be any of us, some of us in particular. Rather than the Bible, this big black hole, we'd rather pray to God and just have Him speak to us. Rather than reading, we want to hear a voice. Rather than studying, we want immediate relevance. Rather than discernment, we want a platter served up with what appeals to me. Rather than doing any kind of work on my own, I would rather just have a professional speaker give me a pep talk to encourage me because of the terrible week I just had and the bad week that's coming up ahead, right? (laughs) Leave the rest a big black hole. Just give me the verses that will help me this week. How did we get here? We've left off the Bible. Pastors started preaching what people wanted to hear, and they've actually reinforced the belief that the Bible isn't just really all that relevant, powerful, or helpful. It certainly doesn't have anything to say about what's happening in my life. It's way too old to understand feminism or intersectionality or critical theory. Can't possibly be up to date with the latest science on the origin of the earth or how to raise children or how to make my marriage work better. The Bible isn't psychologically scientific enough to help me be happy. It's not contemporary or sophisticated, let alone civilized enough to help me for today. It's good for what it was for, getting me out of hell, right, the gospel. But it doesn't matter much after that. That's that's a prevailing thought within people in churches. You know, so many people out there say it's full of errors and myths and stories. There's nothing really in it that matters to anybody today. And if we're not reading it, learning it, studying it, how would we know if that's true or not? 
There are plenty of areas of life where this becomes obvious, where we can see this lived out. When we don't value the Bible as God's word, his inerrant, infallible, authoritative, powerful, completely sufficient for us word from God, when we reject that and substitute anything else, any thing in life can become unstable. Any area of life, we begin to slip away, and as that happens, it happens faster and faster. Take, for instance, creation. Where did the universe come from? What are we here for? How am I supposed to make sense out of this world? You know, what what am I supposed to be doing with my time, with my life? Well, the Bible tells us. And, And it begins in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but if that's just a myth, or if you move it all the way to chapter 11 of Genesis, if it's all just a myth, whatever man decides where God's word starts and which one's just poetic, you, you could just as legitimately go with the world's myth of beginnings. If it's just myth and legend, you can dismiss what God says. But if it's his word, he's telling us how it all came to be and why it exists and why it's important and what we're supposed to be doing while we're here in it. But in the case of origins, there's a rival theory from man that is called science, but it's not really science. It can't, can't really literally be science. It's really more an entire philosophical belief system about a myth of how we came to be about. All of our answers then become what humanity discovers as it intentionally begins a theory without God, and it grows from that. When we leave out the Word of God, our understanding of creation has changed, which, which changes everything. Our understanding of how everything works and operates and what we're here for and what we're supposed to be doing. Our understanding of creation is affected by our view of the Scriptures. What about God? Who is He? What is He like? The Bible tells us what He's like. But if the Bible is just a big black hole, then we're dependent on others, again, to tell us who God is, right, and what He's like. And here's what happens. Here's, this, is, this is amazing that we can see this, and, but we actually do this to ourselves. We pick ourselves up and we transport ourselves back into the Middle Ages, also known as the Dark Ages in Europe. We, we irrationally go back in time. We erase the Reformation and the hundreds of years of studying and growing and learning the Word of God that we've had over the last several hundred years. We place ourselves in the ridiculous position of those who followed the teaching of the prevailing church at the time in the Dark Ages. The Roman Catholic Church told people at the time, you cannot know God on your own. You, you don't get to know God on your own. You get to come to us. We'll tell you who God is. You can't have a relationship with him apart from your priest on earth. He gave us the Bible, but we have it in Latin, and you don't read Latin, <laughs> right? Nobody reads Latin except the people in the church, the priests in, in the church, the cardinals, the, the pope. So if you want to know about God, you've got to come talk to me, and I'll tell you what the Bible says in Latin about who God is. You're completely dependent on me. You don't have it. You don't have a copy of it. You couldn't read it if you had it anyway. And even if you could read it, you wouldn't understand it because you're dependent on me to tell you what, what it means and who God is. Now, they've softened on that today in many cases. But when we don't know who God is, we can't list anything about Him. We don't know who He really is, any of His attributes. We're totally dependent on other people to tell us about who God is. Well, that's our fault because He's told us clearly who He is in the Scriptures. When the only people that we get our ideas about about who God is are on the radio stations that only play music that's positive and encouraging, (laughs) 
Our understanding of God is going to be lacking at best, and many times just plain wrong. And what we do when we reject the Scriptures, we reject the authority or the sufficiency of the Scriptures, we're telling God, you know, you, you tried, but you just didn't do a very good job of telling us who you are. You, you didn't communicate it very well. You didn't make it plain enough. Or you started out well, but then you let it get full of errors or stories or myths, legends. You put enough in there for me to get saved, so thank you, but I'm just going to ignore the rest of it, right? I'm going to ignore how that matters still to me today and how it lives my life. So our understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, salvation, new life in salvation as a result of what God has done is also a result of how we view this book. How do I live my life now? So creation, it matters. God, it matters. How else do we go wrong when we leave out the Scriptures? Well, what about ourselves? Who are we, right? Are we any different from animals? Why is there so much trouble in the world? Why do so many people struggle so often in life? Why do so many bad things happen to me? Why is, why is there so much suffering and hurt and trouble? The Bible tells us. The Bible explains to us what's happening in the world. But the world tells us that the problems that we have are physiological, psychological, DNA boxing us in, so we can't do anything about our problems. We're predisposed genetically to certain problems, yet somehow that doesn't transfer to gender in today's prevailing understanding. DNA is determinative, but only towards sin and <laughs> in those ways. It's your family history. It's, it's your environment. It's trauma that you've experienced. Those are the reasons for your problems. Your parents messed you up. <laughs> we pray for our children. Chemicals that are imbalanced or missing are the reason for my troubles. All of my problems that I encounter in myself and in one another are just chemical, electrical, physical, relational, biological, or just dysfunctional, right? And just as all of our problems are confined to man-defined problems, all of the solutions then become confined to man-delivered solutions. And if that's all true, then what do we need the Scriptures for? God's Word doesn't define our problems in those terms. Now, we know, we admit, and the Bible admits and knows that there are some physical problems that cause many issues in our life, our thought life, our emotional life, our mental life, our thought life. All of these ways, physical things can affect all of that. But nothing is solely physical. There is always a spiritual element. We are spiritual and physical beings, and as we're suffering physically, we're suffering spiritually, emotionally, mentally as well. So that is truth, but God's, worth, God's Word does not precisely define our problems solely in physical terms. And since it doesn't do that, and because we know from science, we know because we've been told over and over again that it all is physical, well, then the Bible must not be authoritative in my life because it can't solve the problems that are physical, that are chemical. It must not matter after you get your ticket to heaven. See, when we leave out God's Word, either not reading it, not studying it, not understanding it as He intended, we abandon the Scriptures as our ruling influence for our life. It begins to affect and infect every area of our life. Have you ever wondered how some Christians can believe in secular humanistic evolution. It starts with dismissing God's Word as sufficient for understanding, as, as the authority, as the power for our life. 
How can Christian churches, professing Christian churches, ordain women as pastors or homosexuals or transgender people as pastors? It's because they've rejected the Bible as their authority for life and for ministry. Why do Christians have no idea that getting saved doesn't mean that they're now free to live their life however they want and fulfill their every dream as if we live in a Disney world? Right? We just, just give it all away to God and He'll take care of you. He'll give you everything you've ever wanted. Why do we believe that everything we've been told, you know, that, that God just can't live without you? That God just, He died just to be with you. That, that God gives us everything, cares about us above all. Like the most important thing to God is me. We've twisted things so much, we've forgotten what the Bible says, that in Him we live and move and have our being. We've forgotten that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. How can we have entire churches of people who don't know the Bible? And how do we have entire churches who don't understand that the Bible says that believers have a responsibility to love one another, everyone in truth, starting with the family of God? Well, it's because pastors and teachers have neglected or rejected the Word of God in favor of other ideas. The pastors have left out the Bible. And, and if they don't use the Bible for life and problem, well, why should I ever go to the Bible for help in my life? You know, they refer me to man-centered philosophy and worldly, worldly wisdom and, and professionals. I'm, I'm certainly not going to go to the Bible if the pastors don't. Pastors were trained in seminaries. They were taught, they were reinforced this, and they began teaching this way, and now the church is now in the state that it's in as a whole, again, as a whole. We're confused on what God wants from us, what we're supposed to do, who, we're, who we are, who God is, what the church is, and how or whether we even exist and what for. One of the areas where this is most evident is in the daily life of a professing Christian. If you were to look at the daily life of a professing Christian and, and look at anybody else, just start with their next door neighbor. Is the professing Christian living a holy life? Is there any difference between the professing Christian and the person who does not profess to be a Christian? Is there a dedicated love and service to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to His people? Or do they look the same? They get drunk, they curse, they watch the same things, think the same things, speak the same things. Could you tell them apart? Does the professing Christian ever tell their neighbor about Jesus, or do they only talk about politics? Or their prescription for dealing with anxiety, you know? People become very good evangelists for this pill or that drug or, or, or this philosophy. But are we telling people about Jesus? Maybe you could tell them apart on Sundays because the professing Christian will get in his car and drive to church on Sundays, and the person who doesn't stays home. But just as soon as church is over, you can bet that the professing Christian is in his car jetting out of there and getting home as quick as he can, or getting back to whatever he really wanted to do that day. Narrowing down, sharpening this point a little bit more... It's not just in the missing holiness of the Christian life. We talked about it last week. One of the primary indicators of holiness, one, one, holiness cannot exist without love. So one of the primary indicators of dismissing the Bible in a professing Christian's life is not just holiness, but a lack of love for the people in this room. 
And I don't mean exclusively, we are to love everyone, but it starts with the precious saints of God for whom Christ shed his own blood in the local church. So, if I say it a different way, the main reason we do not love one another is because we have dismissed or abandoned the inerrancy, the sufficiency, the authority, the power of the Scriptures. We fall into the first challenge God's Word ever had. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, did God really say? When the Word of God is challenged in our minds, our hearts, our souls, when, when the Word of God is challenged and, and we capitulate, we, we let go, we start to lose our handle on it, love is the first to go as well. If we're ever not sure about how we're dealing with the Word of God, what is, how do I view the Word of God? Look at how you view the other people in church, God's people. Now, this is not something I'm making up. I want to show you from God's Word that this is one of the first things to go. We've already talked about, just for a second, I just alluded to the question that Satan asked Eve, did God really say? And when she began to replace God's Word with her selfish desires, with wisdom from the serpent rather than wisdom from God, she left the covering of her husband's love and she was deceived. And then the two of them got together and threw out God's Word. They both sinned. Their relationship with each other was changed forever. They were never able to have the love that they were meant to have. Turn back to Genesis 4, all the way back to the beginning, just after that happened. Genesis 4 is just after the fall of man into sin. It's after they've been cursed. We call it the fall because mankind brought sin into the world by rebelling against God's word. All of creation, all people fell under the curse of sin from that point forward, and all of us in creation will stay that way, experiencing decay and sickness and death until God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And until then, we are dependent on God to create us again, recreate us spiritually, so that by His grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again. But until God creates the new heaven and new earth. We're here. Adam and Eve have been removed from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 4. And they finally get around to obeying God's voice to be fruitful and multiply. And they start with two sons here, Cain and Abel. The older one, Cain, is a farmer. Abel, the younger, is a rancher. They both bring offerings to God from the farm, from the ranch. Abel's is accepted. Cain's is not. Cain gets very mad at Abel. Look at verse 6. God confronts Cain. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God tells Cain personally, individually, directly, sin is always crouching. Since the fall, this is our reality. This is the world that we live in. This is a new reality from what Adam and Eve had experienced in the garden. It didn't exist previously. Sin is always there, always waiting to take control over you. God is really spending time with Cain, biblically counseling him, intensely discipling him. That's what we mean by giving biblical counsel, is just discipling this person. God is doing that personally with Cain here, directly from God. And God's giving him a warning. What does Cain do with God's word? He rejects it. The very next verse Cain meets Abel in the field. The Scripture says he rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. So the next 
sin, the very next recorded sin after the fall of man into sin was murder of a brother brought on by a heart that had rejected God's word. When you reject God's word, you will reject love for others, at least God's love, the love that we're called to, the impossible, self-sacrificing, self-denying, sincere, brotherly love. And if you're not sure, you're saying, eh, I'm not really sure that's what's there. Look in verse 9. As the Lord confronts Cain, what's Cain's famous question? Am I my brother's keeper? What, am I supposed to care for my brother? Am I supposed to love? Am I supposed to have any, any kind of responsibility to him at all to ensure his safety if I can, to love him? You know, do I have any responsibility for him at all? God says yes. But when he rejected God's word in his mind, the next rejection was love for his brother. And then he acted it out. He lived it out. He murdered him. 1 John 3, 11 helps us exp- and, and, and explains this for us. It says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Abel obeyed the word of the Lord, Cain rejected it, and it produced the opposite of obeying the Lord in every area of his life, starting with love for his brother. And it led to murder. Now, that's pretty blatant, right? <laughs> that, that's pretty strong. What about something a little less than a complete rejection of God's word? I mean, most of us aren't regularly walking around saying, I don't listen to this thing at all, right? I don't believe it's the truth at all. Most of us aren't saying that. So turn ahead with me a few chapters up to Genesis chapter 15. And we're we're seeing the connection between love for people and God's Word and how we view God's Word, what we do with the Word of God. In Genesis 15, God has made a covenant with Abraham. The covenant consisted of land, the promised land, seed or offspring, many, many sons, many daughters, and blessings. And, and you can read about the, the land, the seed, the blessings in Genesis. Chapter 13 has some. But, but the promise in the seed, the promise of offspring came to Abraham. It said, if you could count the dust, if you could count the stars of the sky, you could count your offspring. I mean, you're going to have so many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-great-great all the way down. It's going to be amazing. You can't even count them all. There's going to be a lot. Verse 6 of Genesis 15, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God says, here's what's going to happen. Abraham says, I believe God. At that moment, because Abraham believed God's word, God saved this man, Abraham. He counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham hadn't done anything righteous, exactly, And earned salvation. Salvation came by God's grace through faith in God's word, not by works. Abraham believed God's word. Now look at chapter 16. Time is really starting to test Abraham's faith. And he's not going to doubt God's word. He's not going to reject God's word outright. He's he's not going to waver in that point. But his faith in the sufficiency of God's word is going to start to crack. He still doesn't have a son at this point. God says, you're going to have so much offspring, you can't even count them all. Abraham's looking around, he's like, I'm getting really old, and I don't even have one son yet. So he looked for a way to help God bring about his word. Uh, In this passage, his name is still Abram, his wife's name is still Sarai, but she has a maidservant, Hagar, and it was customary in the culture that if a woman could not have children, her maidservant could have children that would be credited to her. 
right? I can't have kids, so a surrogate mother, <laughs> essentially, right, that, that we can do at the time. She'll have kids and they'll be my kids. Verse 2 says, Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, here's the key. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Whose voice did he have to set aside for a minute to listen to the voice of someone else? It was the voice of God. It was the Word of God. Abraham acted on his own plan. He followed man's wisdom and conventions in culture rather than resting completely in the sufficiency of God's Word. They substituted something besides God's Word, and they did their own actions to do what God hadn't done yet. It wasn't a total rejection of God's Word. God, I believe your Word. You just haven't done it yet, so I've come up with a plan to help you, (laughs) right? I've got man's wisdom here. I'm going to take man's wisdom. I'm going to put it with God's wisdom, and we're going to make this happen, right? It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Look at the result in verse 4. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she, that's Sarah, Sarai, saw that she, Hagar, had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And look at the end of verse 6. It, it leads to a split. Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and she fled. She ran away. So we saw in Genesis 4 that rejecting God's word outright led to the opposite of love, hatred, and murder. But here in Genesis 16, just questioning the sufficiency of God's word also leads to a loss of love. It's a split between people. And more than that, the son that Hagar has, Ishmael, is the ancestor of the Arab peoples, many of whom have hated Israel since that time. That's the effect that we see when God's word is lessened in our mind. Love is lost. As soon as we replace God's word with something, as soon as we reject it or just question, did God really say, our love goes with it. If you're still here in Genesis, let's see the positive side of this. Go backward to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is before the fall, before sin comes into the world. And you remember in this true story of the origins of the earth and of mankind, whenever God made something, He saw that it was good. He said He looked over everything that He had made and it was very good. But chapter 2, look at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, comparable to him, suitable for him. God gave his word to man that it was not his good. It was not for his good that he be alone. He says, I'm going to make a helper. But what does God do before he brings a helper, before he makes the helper who's fit for him? He proves it to Adam, that he's, he's not good alone, and there's nothing else that God has not provided that is going to make him fit or comparable, complete him so that he can do what God says. Look at verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. The reason that all the animals came was not just so Adam could have a great time naming them. It was so that he could see that there was nobody fit for him on the planet. Nobody was suitable to him. Nobody was comparable to him. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He gets no input from Adam. (laughs) He says, I'm going to make a woman. 
And while he, was, he, while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. Again, from his side as an equal partner, not from his foot like he can walk all over, not from his head as if he's bigger or, or, or above her or, the, or vice versa so that she can walk on him. Either way, they're equals. God has made her comparable, a suitable fit for him. God, uh, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, verse 23, Adam likes the result, right? He's pretty happy here. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Oh, finally, there, there is something else here that will complete me to make me what I need to be before God to do what he's told me to do. This is the first marriage here. This is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this becomes a pattern for all of marriage, for all people, for all time from this point forward. God tells you, man, it is not good for you to be alone. There is nothing else on earth that, was, that is comparable to you. No pets, no toys, no promiscuous living, no sin. Nothing else will complete you to help you be what God wants you to be to help you along this life journey, right? So verse 24, therefore, because of what God has said and done, because of his word, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the strongest bond of love between human beings. The two actually become one, and it's founded upon and grounded on God's word. This is the, the sufficient and powerful word of God that unites people together. And they're not even two anymore. They're one together in marriage. What happens then when one or both of them rejects God's word and they say, we're not two, we're not one, we're two different people? What happens when one or both of them decides, well, I can be whole, I can be complete, I'm just fine, I'd be better off without this person? They reject God's word and the love is abolished and the people split. As soon as we substitute anything for God's word, love dissolves. God's kind of love. That's why Jesus says about that passage in Mark 10, 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The beginning of man's attempt to separate love starts with his rejection of God's word or even just questioning whether it's sufficient, whether it's authoritative for my life and godliness. Now, the reason for this is because when we don't love God, we can't love others. It, it starts with a love to God. It starts with our love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We cannot love others when we do not love God. They go hand in hand. And John says in 1 John, no matter what we think, we do not love God when we do not love His people. They really do go together. They, they really fit together hand in hand. But our love for God and for Christ Jesus, our Lord, comes directly from His Word, where we get the truth of who He is and what He's done. And our love for others starts in the same place, His Word. As we saw in 1 Peter 1, we are commanded to love one another because we have been born again by the perfect Word of God. And we've been called in salvation to holiness, and we've been called into a sincere brotherly love. God calls us in love to love. And because we can't do that on our own, He gives it to us. He gives us His love that we don't deserve. And then He works it out in us, through us, to Himself and to others. 
in a way that we couldn't do on our own. So if we're not loving others, we're not loving the Lord, and we're not loving His Word. And all of it can not only be traced back to His Word, but through a complete dependence on His Word, the power, the sufficiency that will enable us to love one another and love God. 1 John 2 says, whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. Love for God our Savior, and love for others. That's where love begins and continues because just as the Word of God is perfect and unchanging and complete and true, our love for one another is to be unchanging, complete, and true, and abiding. 1 John 3.23 says, this is His commandment, one commandment, but it has two parts. This is His one commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. See, we're not doing the one if we're not doing the other. It's one commandment. We don't understand Christianity when we're not loving God's people. No matter what we think about Christianity, no matter what we think about what this life is supposed to look like, there is no Christianity without the truth of love and love of the truth. The very mark of Christianity, what Jesus says is going to be the hallmark, or the way that people can tell that you are my disciples is if you have love for one another. We've missed what Christianity is if we leave out the word that brings about love and enables love. It's less love for self, more love for others, and most love for Christ. When we let Jesus define what it means to follow Him, rather than mankind, rather than our feelings or what appeals to us, it looks very different. You've got a series of other verses for you to study more about this on that front page of your notes. But practically, how can we do this? You know, what does this look like? When we're, when we're in the Word of God and, and we're loving other people, how do we get there? What does this look like? I think we've laid out, hopefully, Lord willing, we've laid out a strong enough case that the foundation and the continuing thing that we've got to remedy is our view of God's Word. We can't reject it, dismiss it, or reduce it. Out of a love for God comes a love for His Word, and that enables more love for Him and for others. It's foundational, it's continuing. We, we don't say it's first because a lot of times if we're thinking of a list, we think, number one, this, after I'm done with that, I move on to number two. We don't move on from that. It continues, right? It's foundational and continuing. Our love for people needs to remain grounded in and flowing from the Word. But when the Word of God is our standard for life and godliness, when God through His Word reveals worldly thinking that we've fallen for and, and shows us where we've replaced His Word with man's wisdom, When His Word shapes us and changes us and we begin to live, how do we practically live it out? What does it look like? Well, we've printed out before the one another's. It doesn't look like a bookmark, but the bookmark helps us to see the verses, some of the verses, many of the verses, where the one another's tell us what it looks like. So, again, you can get those on the information counter on the way out. But how do we get from this to these? How do we start to live these out? How does it not become a list of legalism? You know, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Next week, I'm going to try one of those. The week after that, I'll try one of these. And and once in a while, I'll try to do this when I remember, but that's about as far as it goes. How do we make this our life, a, a life that's changed by this? On the back of your notes, the bridge between these is, well, it's an acrostic that spells out cross. But how do we get there? What's the bridge? Well, number one, we need to confess. Confess you are a mess. (laughs) 
<laughs> we confess this. Say the same thing that God says. I, I mess up. You know, you have not arrived at perfection and you're not going to in this life. And the closer that you think you are, the farther away from perfection you really are. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. You know, he says, I don't understand what I'm doing. I hate what I'm doing. I hate my sin, but I love the Lord. I love his word, and I, and I want to grow. I want to do what he wants me to do, but I just can't find the way to do it in myself. Because it's not there, right? <laughs> We're just not going to be perfect in this life. We desire to please our Lord and Savior with obedience, but we just can't seem to get there. The better we understand sin and its effects, the more that we hate it, but God's grace holds on to us. And he grows us, and he continues to grow us when we abide in him, in his word. God's word says you need to love these people. <laughs> you need these people to help you obey him, and they need you to love them, to help them obey. But we all need to first step off of our platforms of contrived holiness, as we talked about last week. Here's my list. Here's what I do. Here's what I don't do. Let's all get onto the level field of God's mercy and understand that I am a mess and I need God's forgiveness, His grace in my life. The grace that saved me is now the grace that saves me. And it continues to grow in me so that my love for others will increase. Number one, confess you're a mess. Number two, recognize others are a mess. <laughs> you know, we need to say that we are a mess. We need to recognize. We don't call out everybody for everything they do. But what's true for me in Romans 7 is true of my brothers and sisters. So don't withhold love because they're not there yet. James 3, 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. All of us do. That's not an excuse to just keep on sinning. Sin offends God and breaks our fellowship with Him. But because of our weakness, because we know that we sin and we have weaknesses and we stumble, we don't love, we're not in God's Word as we should be, we're all stumbling. We need to know that for ourselves and then know that for others. And then rather than being afraid to confess that to our brothers and sisters, we need to look forward to being able to do that, to get together. Hey, how was your week? Good, fine. How was your week? Good, fine. Great. See you next week. No. How was your week? It was awful. I stumbled in so many ways. I, sinned. I looked at this when I shouldn't have, and I thought about that when I shouldn't have. And the way that I treated the guy at the restaurant because he got my order wrong. I mean, it was, you know, it would confess to each other. And, and we're laying out our hearts open to each other in love, and in, in love, we're caring about each other, and we're listening to each other, and we're, we're loving one another. I don't, I don't want to do that. I, you know, people think badly of me. The Lord God of the universe has saved you knowing that you were going to do that, or say that, or think that. And He's saving you to get to become holy, to get over all of that, right? I mean, to, to, to grow in your faith and, your, and in His grace and His love. Don't be afraid of what people think of you. Know what God thinks of you. Well, I'm, I don't want to say anything because, I'm, you know, they might put me through church discipline. <laughs> church discipline doesn't come when you're confessing it, when you're fighting against sin. Church discipline comes when, you, I don't care, you know, I have, everybody sins, I'm sinning too, and it just doesn't matter. No, sin matters and it's important. And so if you're just living with it and, and hiding it and covering it up, well, that's when we get really serious about, please, brother, please, sister, stop doing that. You need to repent. You need to stop. Church discipline isn't about punishing people. It's, it's not about, you know, you're a sinner and we're not. It's about, look, we're all sinners, but you're, you're not struggling against it. You're not fighting against it, and we want to come alongside you and help you. 
So confess that you're a mess and recognize that others are a mess too and love them anyway. Number three, obligate yourself to love messy brothers and sisters. (laughs) Obligate yourself. Don't make any excuses. Don't don't think, I I don't need to do that. Somebody else will take care of that person. Galatians 6, Paul says, brothers, and and he's talking about a mixed group of people in the Greek, brothers and sisters that are both in the group. It's, it's, It's not just for men here. Brothers and sisters, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, some of you think, I'm off the hook because I'm not spiritual. (laughs) Look up two verses before that in Galatians, at the end of Galatians 5. It says, if we live by the Spirit, and we do because we are believers, we're going to walk by the Spirit. That means every single Christian who is a Christian is spiritual. We've been born again. We have been recreated. We are now spiritually alive. So we are supposed to be our brothers and sisters keepers. Brothers and sisters, if anyone has caught any transgression, you, believer, should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. We're supposed to, verse 3, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To love and to help one another as the Word of God instructs, as God's Word tells us. Here's... Here's the good news, literally, the gospel, the good news that saved you, again, saves you, keeps saving you, keeps, keeps changing you in the present tense. And the gospel, the good news, is what we live and speak and serve to others to help them. So get to know one another. Again, you know, I'm not, again, uh, above everybody else. I, I don't exist on another level, on another field. We're all at the same level, playing field of God, needing God's mercy and His grace to get through. If you don't know people here well enough to do that, it's because you need to make an effort to get to know the people here. Remember, as we talked about last time, God doesn't call us to be loved. He has loved us forever, more than we could ever deserve. He's given us all the love we could ever need. Now, our job is to give that love, even if I never get any love back. I'm to give that love The blessing of the body of Christ is that we can be loved, but our call is to love, not be loved. So obligate yourself to love the messy messy brothers and sisters around you. The Word of God already obligates us to it. This is internalizing it so that I know that it applies to me. I need to obligate myself to do this. And these are the practical steps between living and abiding in God's Word and living and abiding in love for God's people. Number four, surrender to Scripture as authoritative and sufficient. Again, 2 Peter 1, 3 says he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's right here. When we're loving other people, when we're going to serve other people and care for other people, don't give them platitudes. Don't, don't give them man's wisdom. Don't advise sin, right? Oh, I think you two should get a divorce. I think you two should, you know, go out and gamble and see if you can make your money more money. I, you know, <laughs> give Scripture... To help surrender to Scripture as the authoritative and sufficient. Not repeating what man says. Now, there's a warning here. And, and I know we're running a little bit long, but stay with me here for a minute. And this is going to fly in the face. This may rattle some cages. Don't give people Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, that many, much of that is true for God's people. Much of that is true for God's people. 
But the context of that verse is the exile of God's people out of the promised land. And if you really want to try to claim that verse, you're going to need to wait 70 years before he does it. Because the verse right before it says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So don't depend on the bookstores or the music or teachers to tell you what the Scripture says. (laughs) Go to the Scriptures. And look at it in context and be careful with them. It's okay sometimes just to go to a brother or sister and, yeah, I don't know what to say. (laughs) When we're struggling in some way and others come that want to help us and they're not struggling in the same way, they're not really going to get everything that we're going through. So we need to be gracious with those who are just trying to come to love us, right? And we need to be willing to just put ourselves out there to love the people who are going through things. You know, the best time that Job had with his friends was when they first got there. In Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, they came, and it says, they came to show him sympathy and comfort him. That was why they came originally. And they sat there with him for a whole week and didn't say a thing. And it was comforting. And then they started opening their mouths, right? (laughs) Waxing eloquent about theology, and they were wrong. So it's okay not to say anything. Sometimes it's okay if you don't know what to say. Allow for the time when you don't know what to say, but just be there for one another. Love the people around us. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. You know, it's a beautiful thing, but sometimes Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. The very next verse in there, Proverbs 18, 1, whoever isolates himself, I'm not going to go to those people. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go find other people, brothers and sisters. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We've got to be there for one another. We've got to come alongside one another and love one another. Finally, and we're calling this our, our application, <laughs> our, the, the bridge between abiding in God's word, abiding in the love for one another. The final one, submit your work to the Lord to do what you can't do. <laughs> we do what we're called to do, but we can't do what we're not called to do. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight exhorts us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, not wondering, not guessing, not hoping, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain not in vain. Nothing you do when you obey the Lord is in vain. Even if the person doesn't accept it, even if they get mad at you for coming, even if they say you're intruding into my life, whatever you're trying to do in love, you're serving Him, you're loving Him, your work is never in vain. Philippians 2.13 tells us it's God who works in us to want to do His will and to do His will. You know the whole fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5? That's not the fruit of you trying really hard and doing everything you can. It is the fruit of the Spirit within you coming out, including love. I want to encourage you with Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So you're a mess. I'm a mess. Obligate yourself to love one another anyway. Surrender to God's word as the authority, as sufficient, as enough for you and for one another. It's precious to us. We, we, going, we are going to live our life by God's word. 
by His grace. Don't make excuses or substitute anything else for it. Submit all you do to the Lord. He's the one who works all of this out. He does the amazing things through us when we're faithful to Him. Father, I praise You, God. We thank You. You are the eternal and good, so good and kind and patient God. God, You're so long-suffering with us. You're patient with us, and yet You've loved us. And God, You've given us Your Word that tells us about Your great love and why, in truth, we needed Your love. And God, You tell us in Your Word why we still need Your love, Your unwavering, perfect love. God, I pray that we would understand Your love. And God, that we would comprehend why we need Your love and Your grace and Your mercy every day, every minute of the day. And Father, that we would see how important it is to love our brothers and sisters the way that you've loved us. Father, that we would follow the example in your word, and God, that as we hold fast to your word, because of our love for you, that you would work that love out in us. That it would not just be our example, but it would be the empowering of your spirit working through your word in our heart. That you would be glorified. God, we don't do this because we want to feel better about ourselves. We're not looking for things for ourselves, you have saved us from our sins. You have given us a relationship with yourself. You've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God, there's nothing else that we need to ask from you except that you would teach us and grow us and help us to continue in these things. And God, that you would work out a love for the people around us. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen that, that you would grow us in that that you would receive all the, all the credit, all the glory, all the praise and honor forever and ever. Amen.